This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture passage for today is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and verses 19 through 31. So let's Hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. In this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross. From there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Good morning, First Prez. It's a joy to be with you. If you have your Bibles open there to the 16th chapter, we're actually going to finish chapter 16 today as we look at this story. But Before we do that, let's take some time to pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your word. And Lord, we pray that um, you would be glorified, you would be magnified in our thoughts and in our hearts. That Lord, as we gather in this place to worship, may you receive the worship that is due your name. Lord, may we stop thinking too highly of ourselves and think more highly of you. May we surrender every aspect of our own self-dignity and come to a place where we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that your word would direct our steps, that your word would direct our thoughts, and Lord, I pray that your word would steer us to Christ, the one whom you've provided as that means of forgiveness, the one in whose righteousness we can be robed with, I pray that we would cling to Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would soften our hearts and that, Lord, you would do a mighty work in us. We pray each and every week that we would be changed and we pray that for this week as well. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave here the same people who walked in, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that our desires would be in alignment with you. Lord, we know there are many in our congregation that are struggling. There are many that are overwhelmed by life's concerns. God, I pray that you would minister to those who are struggling physically, that you would minister to those who are struggling emotionally and mentally. Lord, I pray that you would minister to those who are struggling spiritually. God, I pray that you would use us as your hands and your feet, that This morning, before we leave this place, we would take the time to reach out to others around us and and share the peace of Christ with them, the good news of hope that we ourselves are clinging to. God, I pray that the world around us would see the light that we bear, not because of we ourselves, but because of the Holy Spirit who ministers through us. I pray that the gospel would go forth and lives would be transformed. Lord, we look forward to thy kingdom come. We pray thy kingdom come. We long for thy kingdom come. And yet we know thy kingdom is present with us. And so, Lord, we cling to that good news now as we come to your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. We all have that friend who... Despite what the GPS says, they think they know a better way. Now, I'm not going to tell you who my friend is, uh, because they might be in the room. But here's the thing. There's an individual that we all know in our lives that, that really, truly believes they're smarter than GPS. GPS may say, make it right. And they say, no, no, I just need to stay straight. The GPS may say, no, no, you need to make a left turn here. And they say, no, no, I need, I need just to make a right-hand turn. They constantly seem in conflict with the computers in the car, and we begin to scratch our head and say, don't you understand that the the computer is going to guide you? The GPS is going to guide you. In fact, the brilliant thing about the GPS is it keeps redirecting you. It's catching up with you in all of your right hands and left hand turns, and it's directing you of how to get on the right road. Friends, this morning, we understand that that GPS must be listened to. And of course, that GPS is God's word. As we look at our text this morning, we see in a very real way in which God's word is declaring for us what we must know about ourselves and about God, what we must understand regarding how we're to live, and what we must do regarding salvation. In fact, our story begins... With just that, a story, Jesus is yet again teaching in the form of a parable. And as he begins to tell this story, he's telling story regarding matters of life and death. And the story of the matters of life and death is a comparison of two people. The first is described as a rich man. It says in verse 19, there was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted This is the description of this rich man. He feasted. He's clothed in fine purple linen. 
In this story, it seems as though Jesus is still referring to those people who were gathered with him, those those Pharisees of old. For back in verse 14 of the 16th chapter, he reminds us through the writing of Luke that these Pharisees were lovers of money. And so is here Jesus making yet another connection between the rich man and the Pharisee. Yet we're also told of another person. In verse 20, it reads, At his gate of the rich man laid a poor man named Lazarus. This man was covered with sores. He desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. In these two men, we see a connection, but we also see a comparison. The connection is this. The poor beggar longed to be fed the scraps from the rich man's table. The poor beggar seemed to know the rich man, and the rich man, as we will see, seemed to know the poor beggar. For Lazarus, we're told, laid at the rich man's gate. Every time the rich man would leave, he would see Lazarus there, covered in sores, lying by his gate, hungry for food. Lazarus was hungry for the very scraps of the rich man's table. And yet, the very word that's used there, the word desire or the longing, is one that is unsatisfied. It's an ongoing, present, active longing. He's desiring, he's longing to be filled with just the scraps. And yet, no one gives him anything. That's the connection. But in that connection, there's also a comparison. The comparison is this. One is clothed in fine purple linen, while the, others, while the other is covered in source. One is feasting every day, while the other is longing for just the scraps. And yet we see one more comparison, the comparison of one who was given a name, and the other who no name is given. Look at the text. The rich man dressed in fine linen, the rich man who feasts, his name is not given to us. But the beggar, the one covered in sores, the one who longs for the scraps of the table, we're told his name is Lazarus. What's astounding about this is no time in any of Jesus' parables outside of this text has Jesus ever given the name of one of the individuals he tells in the story. Usually it's a father or a son. Usually it's a rich man. But never are we told a proper name. Here in this story we're told that the beggar's name is Lazarus. No. This is not the Lazarus that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is a story Jesus is telling. At this point in time, Lazarus was still alive and well from the resurrection he personally experienced because of the words of Christ. But something is very important regarding the use of the name, or should I say, the absence of a name. Could it be that the use of the name Lazarus and the absence of the name regarding the rich man gives us a glimpse of their eternal state? Could it be that ultimately Jesus is pointing to some distinction between the two, that Lazarus seemed to be known by Jesus while the rich man was unknown? Almost as though Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. As though Jesus said, get away from me. You're not one of my followers. 
Jesus is making it clear in the story that the rich man who seemed to have everything was far from him. Well, Lazarus, who appeared to have nothing, was near him. Friends, our text yet goes deeper as it compares the two individuals to their eternal state. It tells us of a great divide between the two. There's a divide between Lazarus, the beggar, who upon death enters to the joy of being in the presence of Father Abraham. We read this in verse 22, which says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. But then we read in verse 24 that the rich man entered into a place of eternal suffering, a place where he longed just for a drink of water. Listen to what verse 24 says in giving us this description of the divide. He says in verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The divide is clearly a comparison. But why the divide? Why the chasm? Why the separation between the two? Some may say, well, Aaron, look at verse 25. It seems to tell us why. Verse 25 reads, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Some may quickly make the assumption that it was simply because the rich man had his possessions now that he suffered, while Lazarus, who had nothing, would enjoy the eternity of heaven and joy of heaven forever. Others may say, no, it was because Lazarus suffered in this life. That's why he gets eternity. And the rich man, who had never suffered, now he gets eternal suffering. Friends, I would say both of those assumptions are wrong. I don't believe at all that is what, what is being driven at by Jesus as he speaks through the lips of Abraham. I believe we have to take the full counsel of God to understand what is truly happening in this text. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, it talks about the chasm. It talks about the separation. It talks about the judgment. Listen to what it says. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Friends, don't miss that statement. According to what they had done. Clearly in Scripture, men are judged by how their actions match God's commands. And clearly, God has commanded that one is to love him with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength, all of their mind. And one is to love their neighbor as they love themselves. After all, Jesus said, that is the greatest commandment. We clearly can look at the rich man and see that he ignored the need of a neighbor of whom he knew. One he knew the name of. A person he saw regularly outside of his gate, but never fulfilled his need, only leaving him in want. After all, 1 John chapter 3 
states this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Clearly, what we do does matter. Clearly, obedience to God's word matters at death. Clearly, obedience to God's word matters for eternity. Does not James chapter 2 say, I will show my faith by my works? Friends, it is true. We are not saved by works. But works definitely declare our faith. The rich man suffers for his loveless actions. For his loveless actions towards a neighbor he knew by name one in whom he showed no love towards. It showed his own lack of faith regarding God's word. And so he enters torment. Friends, you can see the hardness of this man's heart. For even in his suffering, the rich man still views Lazarus as less than himself. On two occasions, he tells Abraham to send Lazarus to serve him. The first for him to dip his finger in cool water and bring it to his tongue. In the second, after realizing he will not escape his situation, he commands Abraham to send Lazarus to preach to his brothers. What does this say of this man's hardness? Even in the midst of his suffering, he did not show love to Lazarus. Could it be that he is in many ways replicating Pharaoh, who even in the midst of his own suffering only hardened his own heart? Now, it could be said we're never told of the actions of Lazarus, but one thing is absolutely clear as to why he seems to be with Abraham in heaven. His name is known by Christ. His name is known by Christ. He is known by his Savior. And therefore, Lazarus enters into a place of joy with Father Abraham. The poor man, the beggar, the one covered in sores is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Friends, this is good news. This is good news for all of us who may feel and recognize that we are not equipped. We are less than. We are in need of help. For one must enter the kingdom humbly. The scripture explains that while we're not saved by our works, we are saved by works. Did you catch that? While we're not saved by our works, we are saved by works. In fact, we are saved by the works of Christ, the one who came to fulfill the law for us. The Apostle Paul talks about it this way in Romans chapter 10. He says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the means of righteousness. Christ is the one who fulfills all that is required for us. So if we're in Christ, his work saves us. But friends, if we are not in Christ, we will be judged by our own works. And friends, that is the story before us. 
That is the difference of the chasm between these two men who are compared and connected. That is the story between the rich man and Lazarus. And it's a question for each and every one of us that we must answer. Am I resting in the finished works of Jesus? Am I trusting in Christ alone for my salvation? Friend, if not, know this. You will be judged by your works. For we are either in Christ or we stand naked in our own efforts. There is no middle ground. There is, in fact, a great divide of separation between the two. One who is in the joy of Christ and one who is in the anguish of sin. So what we see here very clearly is that what we do with Scripture matters. Friends, let me say that again to you. What we do with Scripture matters. The Scriptures are sufficient. That's really Jesus' point here. The Scriptures are sufficient. See, realizing his eternal reality, the rich man then begins to ask Father Abraham, saying, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he, Lazarus, may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He seems he has compassion for his own family, but no compassion for Lazarus. But Abraham... Abraham responds saying, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, no. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But again, Father Abraham responds, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, understand what this text is really teaching. This text is teaching us that the scriptures are sufficient. The rich man's request to send Lazarus from the death, from the dead to warn his five brothers is almost like Scrooge being warned by Marley. It's the desire that surely he'll be awakened. Surely they'll come to their senses. Surely they'll repent. Surely they'll change. If only they would see a dead man who has risen from the dead. But Abraham's response is the same. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. And if they won't be convinced by Moses and the prophets, they will never be convinced even by a miraculous sign such as the resurrection from the dead. Now it's true, Jesus may be referencing here the future of what will happen when he resurrects from the dead. But I think, in reality, he's looking back at what had already taken place in Lazarus' resurrection. In John chapter 11, we read that Jesus spoke forth and Lazarus came out of the tomb. But by the time you get to chapter 12, you realize the people aren't all excited. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day not only pursue to seek Jesus' death, but according to John 12, they now want to see Lazarus die. Friends, did you catch it? The hardness of men's hearts, that even in seeing the miraculous wonder of a dead man walking, 
they're still left hard? Jesus speaking through again, Abraham is correct. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, if they will not hear the word of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In church, Jesus is clearly showing the hardness of men's hearts, but Jesus is also clearly pointing us to the fact that God's word is sufficient. What do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say God's word is sufficient? It means it's not lacking. It means God's word is a complete rule of faith and practice for our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice the phrase, every good work, everything. The word of God is beneficial. It's sufficient for everything. Our own confession of faith picks up on this. In chapter 1.6, it says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient for us to understand the glory of God. Scripture is sufficient in telling us how we are saved and where we need to place our faith. Scripture is sufficient in telling us how we should live. Friends, the word of God is complete. It lacks nothing. The question is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Today, we have more access to the Word of God than ever before in our lives. We literally carry version upon version in our phones. We have the ability to listen on every break. We have the ability to read whenever we want. But what do we do? How often we neglect the value of what God has given us and the sufficiency of His Word. Friends, the word of God is complete. It is the complete rule of faith. No one comes to Christ apart from God's divine word. Here, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of God. If that weren't enough, Paul says to young Timothy, reminding him of his own walk in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, how from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures have been given to us to declare how one must be saved. They lack nothing. They declare Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. They point us to the way of salvation. We need no other testimony. Yet what do we do with the word? Do we understand that it truly is the complete rule of our faith? But friends, it's not simply the complete rule of our faith. It's not simply correct about theological matters. It's correct about all matters. The word of God is a complete rule of practice. The word of God guides us towards holiness in all that we do. Hear the words of the psalmist, Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The psalmist continues in verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If that weren't enough, the psalmist in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, revives the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. What is the point of Scripture? The Word of God is complete. It's sufficient for all of our faith and all of our practice. And yet, what do we do? Far too many who profess faith in God's word are inattentive to actually living out what the word commands. We simply ignore it. We simply, to be truthful, reject it in our passivity. Friends, I would just challenge you to remember that our actions, our choices, have eternal consequence. Our works show and testify of our beliefs. Many say they believe, yet they disregard God's word. Yet those who truly believe will truly repent. They will hate their sin, and they will love Christ. They will turn from their sin, and they will turn to Christ. So I ask you, is the word of God your complete rule of faith and practice? Not just in head knowledge, not just in quick acceptance, but is it truly what you live out regarding how you believe one is saved and how one is to live? Friends, if not, it needs to be. Because what we do with the word matters. That's the point of Jesus' story. There were two men, one a rich man who had much to give account for, but he was given the instruction of what to do with what he was given oversight of. There was another who was given sores and was left to begging, and yet he too was given instruction on how he was to live to the glory of God. And when death came, they were separated by a great chasm regarding how they responded to the word of God. Friends, these two people represent all of us here today. There are those who have faith in God's word and there are those who don't. The reality is each and every one of us will stand before the judgment seat and we will either upon the acknowledgement of what we hear, face even eternity of joy because we've been robed in the righteousness of Christ's works. Or we will stand and live in judgment for our own works. Friends, it all really comes down to this. What are we going to do with God's word? What we do matters for eternity. Let's pray. Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from this text, Lord, it's heavy on my heart to realize, Lord, that we have been given so much access to your word and how each and every one of us will be held accountable for it. God, I pray that we would see in it our own inability to live it out, 
that that would force us to run to Christ, that we would cling to Jesus and his righteousness, that we would seek to wear his robes of righteousness and not our own. And yet, Lord, my fear is that there are many in the churches across America that think it is by their own efforts, their own, their own working, for which they will be rewarded. And yet, Lord, we know that the reward they will receive is judgment. So, God, I pray that we here in this room would do business ourselves with what we're doing with the Word of God, that we would see that it is all-sufficient and we need to submit to its authority. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and drive us to Christ. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.